perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of his son, by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be wholly given to him. Appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary must be put to death. The Lord also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine, for all the firstborn are mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. The Lord said to Moses in the desert of Sinai, Count the Levites by their families and clans. Count every male a month old or more. So Moses counted them as he was commanded by the word of the Lord. Verse 39. The total number of Levites counted at the Lord's command by Moses and Aaron, according to their clans, including every male a month old or more, was 22,000. <clears> the Lord said to Moses, Count all the firstborn Israelite males who are a month old or more, and make a list of their names. Take the Levites from me in place of all the firstborn of the Israelites, and the livestock of the Levites in place of all the firstborn of the livestock of the Israelites. I am the Lord. So Moses counted all the firstborn of the Israelites as the Lord commanded him. The total number of firstborn males of one's older more, listed by name, was 22,273. The Lord also said to Moses, Take the Levites in place of all the firstborn of Israel, and the livestock of the Levites in place of their livestock. The Levites are to be mine, I am the Lord. To redeem the 273 firstborn Israelites who exceed the number of the Levites, collect five shekels for each one, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 jiras. Give the money for the redemption of the additional Israelites to Aaron and his sons. So Moses collected the redemption money from those who exceeded the number redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the Israelites, he collected silver weighing 1,365 shekels, according to the sanctuary shekel. Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons as he was commanded by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Um, if you're anything like me, the first time you read this passage, you probably thought, what on earth is that all about? What is going on there? How can we make sense of this? And how can it possibly have anything to say to us today when all it seems to be about is um, some guy counting a load of other guys and doing a bit of maths? Well, um, what I intend to try and do today in the time we have, and it's, it's a short time really to, to go into the whole depth of what's going on here, but uh, firstly is to work through what's actually going on in numbers, trying to work out what is actually happening and why is it happening. So work out what's happening. Second thing to do to why is it happening, what's, what's prompting this, what's behind it, and what does that tell us about God? Because although we're not uh, like the Israelites in many ways, uh, God is still the same. 
Then we're going to look at the passage uh, in the light of the gospel. We're going to look back, knowing what we know now about Jesus, and see if there is any insight to be gained from that. And then finally, we're going to see if we can work out if it means anything for us today. Okay, so essentially, uh, first of all, the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers uh, is the book that takes the story forward from Exodus. So it's the fourth book in the Bible. The the previous book, uh, Leviticus, is uh, a load of rules, uh, particularly uh, about the the kind of temple and the the tabernacle, how to worship God, and the priestly ministry and the the ministry of the the Levites. Um, But this is the kind of narrative that takes us on from Exodus. And it deals uh, with the people of Israel and their time in the desert, in the wilderness. And they are a nomadic people at this point. Uh, They are traveling from place to place. Sometimes staying in a place just for a day, sometimes staying in a place for much longer. uh, But a nomadic people who are traveling and they have no fixed home. They're on their way to the promised land, but they don't quite get there yet. In fact, they spend a long time in the desert. And it's a large camp, it's a large number of people there, Um, and so this uh, book is essentially giving directions uh, at the start of the book on how they should manage themselves, how things are going to work. And it's not only concerned with the practical logistics of uh, a large camp, but it's also uh, talking about the framework for religious practice and how the religious practice can work uh, within this large community. See, God was at the very heart of the Israelite community. He is actively living amongst them, and he is leading them, and they see signs of his presence with them. They see clear, physical signs of God's presence with them. He is actually there, living in the middle of them, in a tent. That's the situation for Israel. And you cannot overstate how important faith was to this people. It was everything it was the most important thing it was the heart of their whole community but the trouble was that the uh, the community uh, was big and the count that goes just before this in numbers they where they kind of count up how many fighting men there are so that they'll know how many people they've got to defend the camp and how they should be best placed well there was over 600,000 men of fighting age in Israel at this time And it's led uh, scholars to estimate the size of Israel at this point, and they think probably in excess of 2 million people. 2 million people in uh, in Israel at this point. Um, Which, to give you some kind of concept, it's about 30 times the population of Taunton. So that's a big number of people, all gathered together in one camp. The trouble was that the, the, uh, the... The frameworks they had of practical life weren't sufficient, but even more so, the framework they had currently of access to God, remember that is the most important thing for uh, the Israelite people. The framework they had was not sufficient, and so people couldn't adequately access God. They couldn't get to, to, to worship God in the way they needed to. So there was a problem practically, which meant that the people of God couldn't worship God in the way they needed to. And that's essentially what verses 5 to 10 is dealing with in this passage we heard read. And it's dealing with the problem that we can't get people to God. There's not enough structure around. So we need some people whose job it will be to manage the affairs of the tabernacle, to assist the priests, to do all the practical things, and to set everything in place so that the people can worship God. 
And so the tribe of Levi is chosen by God to support the work of the priests, and they are wholly given over to assist the worship of the people. So they are no longer have any responsibilities to fight or do any of that stuff. They are purely about assisting people in the worship of God. They are there to support the priests. And so the tribe of Levi is dedicated to the priests and dedicated to God in that way. And that is a very important thing. You need a lot of people to manage that size of population. But that's not the only reason why the Levites have been set apart. There is another reason why God has said, I'm going to set the Levites apart. And it seems that there is some unfinished business between God and his people. And it's unfinished business left over from the escape of Egypt. Because as you'll know, uh, when uh, the last uh, plague that came um, upon Egypt, when, uh, before the people left, before Pharaoh finally decided to let um, the Israelites go, was the, uh, the plague of the firstborn, uh, the, the angel of death taking the firstborn of Egypt. And so the Passover, where the angel of death passed over Egypt and every firstborn child, animal, was killed. But Israel were saved from death. And they were saved from death not because God uh, liked them any more than the, the Egyptians, but because they sacrificed something in their place. You'll know, that's the sacrificial lamb, and the blood was painted on the doors. And that lamb was sacrificed, that lamb died, so that the firstborn in that house would not have to die in God's judgment. You see, God's judgment was as much over his people as it was over the people of Egypt. The judgment wasn't leveled just at Egypt. It was over all people who failed to meet up to the standard of God, and that included his own people. And that's why they had to sacrifice a lamb, so that they would not die. But it seems that even the lamb's sacrifice, although it was enough to save the life of the firstborn, it was not enough to remove them from God's judgment altogether. And God declares there in verse 13 that the firstborn are his. So for the firstborn are mine. When I struck down the firstborn in Egypt, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel, whether man or animal, they are to be mine. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I think sometimes we lose the gravity of that word Lord. Because in our culture, we, uh, we talk a lot about a personal relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that lovely access accessibility to him, which is wonderful. But we sometimes lose sight of who God is. God is holy and perfect. He is all-powerful. He is the Lord. How could any people be found worthy in his eyes, even his own people? And so although they were spared from death, they were claimed by the Lord as his own. So the, the Lord had a claim on all the firstborn of Israel. And that's a problem. Something needs to be done about that because they're not dedicated to him in the way that they should be. So what should be done? Well, God proposes a trade. And so they count up all the Levites, 
All those who are old enough to be of service. All those who are old enough to be dedicated to God. They count them up. And when they count them up, they find that the number of Levites is 22,000 exactly. Now stay with me on this. This is where it gets a bit mathematical. uh, But we can manage it. So 22,000 exactly. You, you may think that that's quite a round number, quite, quite um, surprising that it's a round number. Maybe they were rounded up and down. Maybe it was uh, 22,002, and so, oh, 22,000 will do. Well, that would make sense if the next number we got was a nice round number as well, because the next number we get is the counting of all the firstborn. So all the firstborn of Israel, how many of them are there? How many of them who are dedicated to God? Well, there was 22,273 of them. So you obviously wouldn't round one number and not the other. So there must have been 22,000 Levites, which is, I think, quite interesting. What a nice round number. Just a a side. So there's 22,000 Levites who have now been dedicated to God for the work of uh, the priest and the temple, uh, and the the tabernacle, no temple yet. And there's 22,273 Israelites who who God has claimed for his own. And God proposes a trade. He says, I'll take the Levites and I'll give you back the firstborn. The Levites will be dedicated to me. They're mine, I'll claim them for my own. And you can have the firstborn back. Because there has to be a price paid. These 22,273 Israelites who God has claimed need to be redeemed. Because they're under God's judgment. And so God proposes this trade. The Levites for the firstborn. But there's a problem. In fact, there are 273 problems. There's the maths. 273 problems. There are 273 extra firstborns than there are Levites. So what do you do? What does God do? Well, 273 is around, not quite, but around about 1.25, so one and a quarter percent of 22,000. Which isn't much, is it really? It's not much at all. Maybe if you, uh, if you were me or you, we might just say, close enough, keep the change. But that's not good enough for God. Because God is the Lord. He is perfect. He is beyond reproach. He is above all things. He knows the depths of the sea. He knows how many stars there are in the sky. It's not good enough for God. You can't shortchange God, not even with just 273 people. No, the full price must be paid for those who need to be redeemed. The full price must be paid. And so God sets a price on them. And he says it's uh, five shekels according to the, the sanctuary standard. Now, five shekels of silver in today's money would be worth about £2,000, but probably uh, back then would have been worth an awful lot more. So it's a considerable amount of money, but it's not just about the money. The money is a demonstration that the price, the full price, must be paid for those who need to be redeemed. And it's called redemption money. Because it is there, it is paid to redeem those extra people who did not quite fit 
under the, uh, into the Levites. It's paying for the redemption of those 273 people. Now, in reality, the whole exchange is purely symbolic. Because the price of bringing somebody from under God's judgment into freedom is more than five shekels of silver. And indeed, actually, even the Levites trade themselves. That's purely symbolic. Because the life of somebody who is under God's judgment, who is not perfect before God, is not enough to buy back the life of somebody who is under God's judgment. That's the reality. That the Levites, even though they're now dedicated to God, as much as anyone else in Israel and anyone else in the whole world, is under God's judgment, not meeting up to his standard. And so even the lives of the, uh, the Levites, which are exchanged for the, uh, the, peop- the firstborn of Israel, is not enough to redeem them. It's purely symbolic. It's symbolic that a price needs to be changed at uh, the paid. You cannot shortchange God, and it is the full price that needs to be paid. This demonstrates us to some, something about the nature of who God is and his relationship with his people. And that nature of God has not changed. God is the same now as he was then. God requires that the full price for our sin is paid. The full price. We cannot get off scot-free and we cannot shortchange God. The full price of our sin must be paid. And if you'll remember, back in Genesis, when God talks about what the cost of sin is, he says, death. The full price must be paid. Death. The Levites couldn't cover the cost of the sin of the firstborn because they were sinful themselves. We'll come back to that in a minute. In addition to this, the Levites now had uh, another responsibility in the camp. So the way the camp was set up was this. The tent, the tabernacle, the tent of God was right in the middle. And then camped around the tent of God would be the tribes, sort of like in a clock. So there was 12 of them. One got split in two. But then you take the Levites out, so you've still got 12. And they were set up around the tent in a circle. Each of them had their own particular place to camp in the north, the south, the east, the west. They had responsibility within their own camps to, uh, to defend that side of the camp and all that sort of stuff. But the trouble was that there is this problem between God and his people. The problem of the people not being good enough to come to God. That's why they can only access God through the priests who go through a very elaborate sense, uh, set of washing in order to be able to access God. And so in order to create a buffer between the people and God so they didn't get too close, so they didn't accidentally stray too far and come under God's judgment, which was instant death, the Levites camped around the tent of God as a buffer, those dedicated to God, a buffer between the people and God so that the people would not accidentally wander into the wrong place and accidentally be killed, well, not accidentally be killed, but be killed for that, that trespass. And so the Levites, when they were dedicated to God, became this buffer which allowed the structure and the framework so that people could now access God but also kept them safe 
so they can access God in the right way. They became a bridge, if you like, between the people and God, assisting the priests in their duty of representing God to the people and the people to God. So let's look back on all this through our New Testament glasses. Let's see um, if there's something that that can shed light on. So I just want to read a passage uh, from Matthew, and it's, uh, it'll be a familiar passage, and it's one among many which talk about um, this, uh, which, which get, will shed some light on, on the, the, uh, the Old Testament for us. So Matthew 11, verse 25 says this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those, uh, the son, those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And in me you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus talking about his ministry, about why he, he has come. You'll know that in another place he talks about us, him coming so that we can have life in all its fullness in, in John. And he also talks about being the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the truth is that the, uh, the exchange between the Levites and uh, the, the firstborn of God was a symbol. And the price that was paid for those extra was also a symbol. But what it was symbolizing was the true exchange that would come in the future. It was a foreshadowing of the real exchange that would happen in the future, which would allow people to be made right with God. And what Jesus is referring to in that passage we just read in Matthew is that he is the one. He is the one who will make that sacrifice, the real sacrifice. He is the one who will pay the real price. He is what these symbols are pointing to you. And it's his death and resurrection that gives this substitution in numbers any power to have any effect to the people of God. It is a glimpse of what Jesus comes to do. And what we note is that the price in numbers needed to be paid in full. But the truth was, it wasn't be able to be paid by the Levites or by that money. But the price is paid in full by Jesus on the cross. You see, Jesus died for the sins of the world. And as Romans says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be brought back to God. We could be brought back into that relationship with God. And now he is our great high priest. And the, the, the priest in, uh, in the Old Testament, in, in the, in the, here in the book of Numbers and through the Old Testament, the priests were those who could go to God and bring the people before God. They were the gateway through which the people could access God. And through them, God could access the people. Well, Jesus is the gateway 
It is through Jesus, our great high priest, that we can now access God. Now, they call me in the Church of England a priest because uh, a bishop put his hands on my head two times, (laughs) said a few words. They call me a priest. Um, Don't tell the bishop, but I mean, that's a nonsense. (laughs) That's a nonsense. You don't need me to access God. Each and every one of us are priests because we can access God through Christ. Each and every one of us. He is our great high priest. And I believe in the priesthood of all believers. I believe we all have the access to God. But perhaps as well as the priesthood of all believers, I believe we have a Levitical duty as well. We have a duty to be like the Levites. Because the Levites were the ones who made it practically possible for the people to access God. We live in a world that does not know how to access God. We live in a world which is distant from him, which is broken and in need of a saviour, but it doesn't recognise him or know him. It needs a great high priest, but it has rejected him. Perhaps like the Levites, we have a responsibility to make the things that need to be made, the connections, the links, the frameworks, so that the people out there can encounter God. And that happens uh, through the church, but it also happens on our individual front lines as well. I don't know if you've ever realised it, but when you get out there into the workplace and you sat next to the person next to you, you have a Levitical duty to that person, even though they may not even know it, to provide some framework or some measure so that they can in some way encounter God. It's not our place to force people, but it is our place to provide what is needed so that if they want to, they can access God. Through Jesus. I think God is calling us, the church, to be a bridge. Be that bridge that the Levites were between God and the people, between our world and God. Are we going to be up to that task? Are we going to allow uh, God to use us to uh, engage with this world? And are we going to be willing to have the world walk over us in order to meet God? Well, we've got a few weeks in numbers, and I think it's going to be a fun time. (laughs) I think we're going to have to use our brains a bit, but I think there's some real treasure to be found there. Because essentially what the Old Testament is, is it's the setup And it's the the ordering of uh, our minds, helping us to realize just how much we need a savior. Just how wonderful God is, how amazing he is, but how much we need a savior. And as we look at the truth that we find there, it brings that beauty of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he can continue to do in our lives and through us into a glorious, sharp focus. So although they may be slightly difficult passages to look at, let's bear with it because there's some good stuff to be found there. Dear Lord, would you unpack these scriptures for us? Would you show us the truth that's within them so that you can transform our hearts and that you working through us, together we can transform this world. In Jesus' name, amen.